Okay, so as I said, you know, what we're here to do is look, I've been looking over the last three years um, at this amongst other projects, um, which thanks, I, oh yes, I have to acknowledge the ESRC, they funded this work. <laughs> Thank you, ESRC, they've been funding me for a very long time, I've been very lucky. It's my second postdoc with them, and um, yes, they gave me the opportunity to work on issues that are very dear and close to my heart, and uh, so. Thank you, ESRC. Okay, it's, it's worth your, 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 your support. Um, and the real purpose of the work was, as I said, uh, not just to look at this comparative, um, this question about integration comparatively, but also to, to, to look at, to try and get those who are the objects of these debates, to try and get their voices out into the public domain. So that's really what, what motivated me. Okay, now before I continue, um, I want to um, just uh, remember somebody in this, uh, in this, uh, on, on this day. Um, one of the interviewees um, in, 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 in Southwark, a lot of the work takes place in Southwark, um, was, was, uh, a nine, was 19 at the time he was interviewed, it was the 1st of September of 2011, and four months ago, um, he was stabbed, and uh, he was being he was interviewed by our researcher, my research assistant, uh, um, Amy Dufour, who unfortunately couldn't be here. And um, I revisited the transcripts of that interview, um, which were which were very revealing. Uh, Temi uh, is today um, he's out of his coma. He was in a coma for over a month. Um, and he's now able to write and has recovered uh, some of his speech, but he's still in quite a, a bad state. Um, clearly from the interview, he was someone who had been living a very precarious existence. He'd been in prison three times um, and had also previously been the victim of a number of other stabbings. Um, I say this because I just, you know, this research gave us, gave me a, a really unique opportunity to talk to a whole group of people, diff variety of people um, from different backgrounds um, who, who willingly on street corners or in their own homes or um, in, you know, on, 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 on pavements sat and talked with us um, sometimes for one hour, two hours. And, and, and shared their secrets with us. And so we're, it's very privileged information. This is not in any way um, quantitative data sets um, that can be generalized. These are stories, life histories, life stories of people um, who give us insights into the way they live, uh, perceive and, uh, the state in their lives and, and, and some of the, the, the realities that they live. And, and I want to kind of remember those people, especially the ones who are living a bit on the edge, like Temi, that um, it's through the, the um, possibility of hearing his narrative and the narrative of others like him that we can start to perhaps um, get a grasp some of um, the, 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 the very complex picture that often escapes those policymakers who who talk very um, loudly about what needs to be done. So, just remember Tim there. All right, so what's this research about? Okay, the original idea, I don't want to, I'm not, we haven't got that much time, so I don't want to go into too much detail, but just to say that my background <coughs> is not really in migration or immigration or 
race and ethnic studies as such. I've come from an Africa perspective. I'm an African studies person. I'm politics um, um, by discipline. And I've been looking for the last over 10 years, really, at the whole way in which um, policies shape identity, discourses, and behavior. So the real area of my most of my field work and, uh, and research and articles and, 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 a, and a monograph that's still not yet finished um, has been in Nigeria, really, in, in Nigeria, in the Niger Delta. And I look really at how oil and the politics of oil revenue distribution and the politics around oil production shapes the way in which people come to think of themselves as belonging to this or that. <coughs> and the way they use those markers in order to make certain claims. So I've always been interested in that idea, and what this project allowed me to do was kind of look at that, look at these questions of ethnicity, race, and so on, in a very constructive way. So to look at how policies, and the idea is really to look at how policies shape the realities, uh, or shape the identity kind of discourses that people come up with. And you know, the, con the, 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 the French UK comparison was very welcome because <clears throat> these are two <clears throat> countries that have made a lot of noise <clears throat> about being really different. So in France, um, there is, there has been for a long time a political or a kind of a, 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 an interpretation of, a, 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 of republicanism, which is about um, uh, assimilation. So um, even though this, many, in many ways, this is rhetorical, and there's lots of, there has been lots of shifts in France over time, but the basic idea is that um, the way that France would seek to address its minority problem would be one, to not imagine that there is a minority problem, that the issue for people of immigrant descent is to lose their particular identities and, 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 and uh, assimilate into a French national identity. So the idea is that if you have French, once you've acquired French citizenship, which is relatively straightforward legal um, uh, um, issue, you become French. And there is no such thing as hyphenated identity. And the idea that there can be any communal identities or religious identities or ethnic identities that act as a go-between between the state and the people is kind of no-no in France. And, but in the UK, there's been, even though it's been jettisoned, at least publicly in the last 10 years or so, there's been an emphasis on multi, uh, a multicultural idea. I don't know, there's big debates on what are we really talking about multiculturalism in many different contexts. There are different interpretations of multiculturalism. Um, anything ranging from the respect of particular cultural rights of groups to um, uh, quite strident anti-discriminatory, anti-racist policy. So I'm not saying there's, there's one, one basic interpretation of multiculturalism, but it has conditioned uh, a sort of a tradition or an ideal of integration in the UK, even though this has, there's been a kind of backlash against this over the last 10 years. So it made sense to me to look at these two policy environments or policy traditions, if you like, if they in any way affect the two particular groups that I'm interested in. Okay, so I've gone over that. Um, okay, so what did we do then? So um, most of what we did was to do in-depth interviews, um, policy interviews, 
with over 50 individuals in France and the UK. Most of the work was carried out in Southwark Borough, in different parts of that borough. Um, and uh, in France, this work uh, in the 80s arrondissement of Paris, in a place called La Ville d'Or, uh, which is near where I live, so it was very convenient. And uh, in, in Montreuil, which is on the suburbs, of the outskirts of Paris, in the 93rd arrondissement, um, um, which is known to be politically, particularly a kind of, um, it's got very notorious reputation for being, not Montreuil itself, but the 93rd arrondissement as being a very kind of no-go area. And then Le, ha Le Havre in, in Normandy. So we did more, we, we were more widely spread in France than in, 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 in London for resource reasons, really. Um, so we collected life histories. Um, we talked to, to a cross-section of individuals, men and women, from different Nigerian ethnic groups and different Senegalese ethnic groups with different migratory histories. I mean, there are a whole gamut of, 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 of different people. We also spoke with voluntary sector uh, people, government workers, community activists, and so on. We also tried to do ethnographies of place. So uh, uh, in, in, in Southern kind of based on uh, secondary data and also participant observation, we kind of try to do a situated um, study, uh, same with uh, the case studies in France. Um, why did we choose? You know, people have said to me, what, 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 if you're gonna compare, why not compare like with like? What have Senegalese um, French got to do with uh, Nigerian Brits? Why don't you look at Nigerians in France as well as Nigerians in Britain and so on? And I said, well, when I say, well, one, I was just interested in looking at these two groups, and two, not that they're groups, they're more categories, but two, and two, um, I was interested in the relationship between the, 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 the groups themselves and, and, the national, uh, and the national context. So in France, Senegal has a particular historical significance for France, it's the kind of jewel in its colonial crown. It was the kind of Dakar, the capital of Senegal, was the capital of the whole of French West Africa. There's a long tradition of um, uh, migration from Senegal to France, which is kind of, it makes it sort of part of an, what I call atypical migration histories. Similarly, in the UK, uh, the relationship between the UK and Nigeria is, is quite particular. You have mass Nigerian migration um, in the 80s and late 70s, but you also have histories of migration from Nigeria to the UK before that. So they were quite interesting because of what they represent symbolically and historically for the countries in question. Um, what was interesting, though, is that, um, as we'll see when I look at the results, that um, even though periodization is is different, so you tend to have more early migration from Nigeria to the UK than you do Senegalese to France. But there are certain periods when there's kind of mass uh, Nigerian migration from, um, you know, as a result of economic crisis in Nigeria, and similarly, uh, sort of mass Senegalese migration, and it's in those migratory context that the comparisons between the children of migrant parents become interesting become become meaningful. You, you'll, I'll explain what I mean later. But so it's not so much whether Senegal and Senegalese, French and uh, Nigerian Brits can be compared, but it's 
there, there's a diversity of experiences depending on the migratory history of the parents and, and it's that, those kinds of things that's important. It was interesting to look at. Um, so my question, what, you know, my question, do these policy traditions make any difference to the, um, to the identities that uh, these groups hold to be important? Um, and yes, I, there's a, that I'm not going to go into great detail here, but um, there, there is, I, I use the term constantly, integration, okay? Um, I'm saying that integration, you know, assimilationist and multiculturalist approaches are two different ways of looking at integration. And you'll find, or you, you may well be aware, that integration today has a much more kind of assimilationist connotation. I'm not using it in that sense. I'm just thinking about it in its broadest political sense um, as processes of incorporation of marginalized groups. And multiculturalism and republicanism can both be seen to try and address impediments to integration. Okay, so maybe some, just to finalize some basic research questions that I was asking myself. So what are the effects of multiculturalism and republicanism on identities, on minority identities? And I would be, and I've kind of broken these down into sub-questions. So do Nigerian Brits in the UK, if there was an impact, one would expect Nigerian Brits in the UK to use race, ethnicity, or religion to describe themselves and their identities more than national ones, for example. Um, and in the French case, we would expect, given that there's a kind of Republican ethos, that uh, Senegalese French are using more national markers for defining themselves than ethnic or racial ones. Okay. Um, I'll go, maybe I'll just, there are also, I'll just move on swiftly because of time, but there are also important class and gender dimensions to the questions I was asking. So, um, yes, are the, are the answers to these questions um, uh, conditioned by the particular class um, perspective of the individuals that I, I ask the questions to? Um, how does um, socioeconomic status or even the migratory history of parents influence how far um, the, the national um, um, policy environment shapes the identity discourses and gender as well. Um, okay, let me move on here. Okay, so yeah, that's, we were, okay, I'll just go back. We were basically looking at um, uh, young, what, what, what we tried to do kind of a broad, uh, 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 we tried to contain ourselves to looking at a broad kind of group of young, what we call young people from 18 to 35. It wasn't always possible to get respondents in those categories, but we kind of, uh, ultimately, when you're doing this kind of research, um, you, you, you also take advantage of opportunities that become available to, to get people to answer your questions. Okay, so what did our research team look like? Um, it, was in, it, was, it was interesting because um, the, the composition of our group was also um, uh, you know, linked to the questions that we were asking. Okay, so in the UK, I had um, one Nigerian Brit uh, involved, uh, who was of Yoruba uh, descent. I had another Nigerian Ghanaian mix. I had a, Niger uh, had a Ghanaian American also involved in doing some of the interviews and a Cameroonian long-term UK resident. Uh, in France, I had a Senegalese uh, researcher 
who Senegalese migrant who's been spending who spent a long time in France, and I also I'm Nigerian origin, um, but Scottish by birth and London by upbringing. So I was also so what I the reason why I'm mentioning this is because I was also interested in not just the collection of stories, but how the researchers also interacted with um, the researched subject and also reflected on you know, their, their own input into interpreting what they were hearing as part of the story. So what I'm going to present to you now is really just rough cuts. We're still um, analysing um, more systematically the material, but I think it, at this stage it was important just to give you a sense of what's coming up. Okay, so that's by way of introduction. Has everyone more or less followed? Uh, okay, if there are any clarification questions that you can't hold on to till I get to the meat of the subject, fire away. Okay, is that okay? Okay, now this section, I mean, if you could just stand up. <coughs> Myself and Constance are going to do this jointly. I mean, what I want to do is just present to you broadly um, how I, in, re in relation to the questions that I was asking, um, how, what I'm starting to see um, in the research findings. Constance, who did work um, on, uh, who, who's the Cameroonian long-term resident in the UK that I refer to, um, she's done a lot of work going through um, the transcripts and transcribing a lot of the French material. Um, and, and so she'll give some insights into the very specific French case. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to go first? No, I'll go first. Okay, I'll go first. Okay, you don't want to go first? Okay, all right, I'll just keep going. You might be bored of my voice. Okay, all right, let me, let me, let me get through this. So what have we found then? Um, there are similarities. And this might not be surprising. Um, there are a lot of similarities between the life narratives of young men and women living in spatially concentrated estate settings in London, Paris, and Noir. Is that so surprising? Well, maybe not. So what comes through repeatedly in a lot of the narratives are similar stories of police brutality, high incidence of school exclusions, survival strategies, hustling and drug dealing, high unemployment, disillusionment with educational advancements as a guarantor of social mobility, postcode loyalties, and ambivalent attachments to national identities in both contexts. Okay, I'll qualify, because if we take ourselves out of the ghetto, you know, high areas of high um, residential, uh, uh, so say spatial segregation and uh, concentration, then um, we might have to, a more complex picture. But that was the, that's for me, that's the striking thing. Um, that irrespective of all the talk about discrimination, more or less, or multiculturalism, how terrible that's how they see it for us, um, when you actually go and talk to young people, that, that policy um, uh, game. Um, it, it is really very far away. Uh, uh, similarities, so class, like these, you know, some of these um, similarities could be explained by class um, similarities. You know, I've mentioned, you know, the staggered, the staggered kind of um, 
comparison between the migratory um, histories. You know, at one point in the UK, you have in, 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 the, in the 80s, in places, for example, like Peckham in, in, in Southern, that we'll look at later, you have um, a, a, a rising but, you know, migrant uh, population with um, varied uh, um, uh, uh, kind of uh, um, paths in terms of educational uh, attainment um, and before you, or, or, or unable to find jobs that match their educational qualifications, so you have a kind of, a, 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 kind of a, um, a very different profile of Nigerian migrants to that which you had in the 60s and 70s. Um, and it's that, and, it's, and I'm wondering, I think, it's because perhaps in some ways because of that, that there are also similarities with experience of Senegalese, um, um, the products of Senegalese migrations, which are around the same time or slightly earlier in France, but fall within the same kind of socioeconomic uh, category. Uh, um, so, you know, I said earlier, you know, given that in the UK you have this multiculturalist tradition, even though much jettisoned now, but for example, things like ethnic statistics or what they call ethnic statistics in France or, you know, census which counts on ethnicity and, and, and so on, um, one might expect that the uh, identity repertoires that uh, young people mobilize might reflect that in some way, yeah? Um, but, um, so, you know, in the UK, um, however, what I was picking up was that um, people fill in things like black British and so on on forms, but there's no sense of deep appropriation of the black. In fact, as we discussed this morning, there's a there's a kind of, amongst the young generation, a kind of um, distancing from black uh, as an identity um, and, and, and a kind of um, uh, distancing because it's perceived, I mean, this came through a number of interviews, perceived as something kind of imposed. It's, it's, it's a kind of a default identity. You know you're black because the police will stop you more than anybody else. So you know you're black, you know, that kind of, so there's a very, there's a, so that, that's a shift away from a kind of, um, a, a, a progressive black identity that might have existed in, uh, uh, you know, in previous decades. Um, in the UK, Nigeria, the Nigerian is also increasingly worn uh, as a trendy identity. You know, a lot of people would talk about how when they were at school, primary school, secondary school, it was really shameful to be referred to as Nigerian. Especially, you know, it would be the butt of West Indian jokes and so on. But then afterwards, um, recently, with Bollywood, with Hollywood, uh, yeah, no, Nollywood. With Nollywood and um, you know the increasing presence of uh, Nigerian music in clubs and stuff, you know there's a kind of it's, it's, it's all right. But that's that's very much about a kind of a London identity. It's not really about identifying with Nigeria proper, or even it's not even about identifying with being part of a Nigeria community and stuff. That's something reserved for parents and so on. Because friendship groups, you know, born out of living within the same state, living in the same streets, going to the same schools, are beyond Nigeria. And there are other African communities. There are other, um, uh, there are other West Indians, predominantly black in many contexts. I looked at, uh, but not exclusively Nigerian or even exclusively black. Okay, in France, 
Interestingly, you know, um, African, the idea, African, the label African is used, very widely used, instead of black. And um, so we, the black talking about, the French are very, very um, embarrassed about talking about anyone being black. In fact, interestingly, they would rather refer to you as black using the English word. They wouldn't say noir. If you say someone's noir, it's like you're insulting them. But if you say a black, it's kind of trendy. So there's a, there's a, in, in France, um, amongst the people I speak, I spoke to, you know, um, there was um, a, a big talking about oneself as African was common currency, okay? Um, and black is still taboo. Um, and and, and, and yeah, this use of the term African is a kind of a racialized category equivalent to black, I argue. Okay, in France, there's a, there's a willingness, interestingly, you know, there's a willingness, and this was a, this was a kind of um, a difference with the, French, with the uh, Nigerian Brits. You know, in France, there's a willingness to appropriate um, a Senegalese identity or, or, or being referred to as Senegalese, even though there was a lot of discomfort around that because being Senegalese was like, it wasn't that they knew Senegal so well. But it was like they were kind of stuck between, on the one hand, their parents pulling them in this Senegalese direction, uh, in that um, you are not French, you are Senegalese, um, and the French also being very uh, reluctant, or the French, or what they perceived as the you know white French, being reluctant to accord them the right to define themselves as French. And interestingly, in 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 in, in, Fra in France at the moment, there's a very high-profile Senegalese young woman called Rofaya Diallo, who's a journalist and who's very much courted by the media. But she set up a movement a few years ago called French No Comment, and just French No Comment, you know, in order to kind of address this issue of always having to justify one's desire to refer to oneself as French if one was black. So it's almost like to be um, black or to be African and French is still, still problematized. Um, okay, yes, and on the, uh, this is still on the similarities front, so, um, what is the difference? Is just the issues of, uh, that keep on, kept on coming up in a lot of the interviews, so crime, punishment, and volunteering. Why have I put those in those, um, they're, they're, they're all, all together? I, I was, attended an interesting conference last week in Paris, a couple of weeks ago in Paris, where the French, um, Chicago-based um, sociologist, Louis Vacon, I don't know if anybody knows of him, California-based um, uh, sociologist, um, talk, gave an interesting paper, which basically talk, said that um, incarceration and volunteering uh, were, a, were becoming a means of uh, dealing with, um, is it a kind of a, 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 a kind of a policy choice for dealing with um, racialized minority groups. So, um, yes, he was just talking about it as kind of part of a new uh, neoliberal sort of governance model, which was in which, you know, um, marginalizing was and, and, and dealing with problems of marginalization through imprisonment was kind of part and parcel of a new governance culture. And, and volunteering, encouraging uh, young people in highly uh, spatially concentrated zones to seek social mobility through volunteering is also another kind of governance strategy. It's very interesting that 
in the French Senegalese case, and this was the case in Le Havre, it was the case in the 18th Arrondissement of Paris, it was the case in Montreuil, that I never met so many young people whose um, main uh, arena, main uh, kind of avenue for getting out of the ghetto was through volunteering and community organizations. In France, there's a whole, um, uh, there's a huge associational life, and it's to do with the way the education system is constructed. There's no school on Wednesdays. So there's a whole series of, um, um, what's the word, um, um, initiatives, or so a whole architecture around a, you know, associations basically set up to provide after-school clubs or Wednesday clubs. And these initiatives, particularly in highly deprived areas, are the avenues through which young people kind of get voluntary professional qualifications themselves or ways into a kind of a sector that will get them out. When you go to rich neighborhoods, I mean, there are very few ch children of uh, middle-class uh, families that are involved in volunteering and uh, sort of uh, after-school clubs and so on. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon. In, I started to look at it a bit in the British context, um, and, I, and I still get the sense of, particularly in Southwark, and we'll discuss this later, that it, you know volunteering or uh, community work remains quite marginal to the to the panoply, the, 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 the kind of the, the range of strategies that young people mm -hmm. are using to get themselves out of a kind of fatalistic future. Um, right, I'm not going to do that. I'll deal with that afterwards um, in, in, in the summit. There's a, lot, a number of issues here that will come up later, and I think I'll just maybe I'll just maybe sum up and pass the mic to Constance. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to here make draw tentative conclusions uh, or explanations as to why. Uh, there are these similarities in the discourses of the groups that I look at um, and, and, and what explains difference. I've already referred to the migratory trajectories. I think, you know, I think there are important issues to be further researched there. Um, and I'll just say this, you know, um, in, many of the, in many of the interviews I carried out, um, you have issues in both countries where you have fathers that are out of work and have been for a while or are absent from the household. You have mothers that are holding down a number of different jobs whose either whose educational qualifications are not um, reflected in the jobs that they do or do not have the educational qualifications to be able to do more um, skills work. That those factors have knock-on effects on the ability of those parents to be able to um, strategically um, uh, make choices about things like the educational choices of their children, okay? Or the educational opportunities for their children. So it just leaves those children, the groups that I was looking at, in quite vulnerable situations. In contexts where you've got a different migrant, you've got a different, you know, like for the first migrant setup. So you've got parents who might even come over earlier, who their educational qualifications are slightly higher, who are able to kind of understand the system and adapt to it. 
they're making strategic choices about what they do with their children and where they send their children to school. For example, it came up a lot in, in Southwark, and I'll talk about this later, that a number of parents are, have deliberately taken their sons out of schooling in the neighborhood or in the particular area. That, if they've had you know, opportunities like the government-sponsored assisted placement, assisted placement scheme, which Labour, the Labour government sort of abandoned in the, in the 90s, was a, was, a, was a kind of a, a vehicle where gifted uh, young boys could, um, and girls, presumably, could, um, could gain places, government pay for places, in private schools or schools outside the borough. And there's a huge trend of Southwark young boy, Nigerian boys being sent to schools like Westminster, public schools but outside the borough. Um, and, it's, and in making these kinds of choices, parents are, 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 are managing the kind of repercussions of the, 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 the ghetto um, uh, context on their children. And th those parents are able to do that makes all the difference to what happens afterwards to those children. You, you just look at the, the narratives of what those children then go on to do later, or the choices that they're able to uh, mobilize very different. And even, even the language, their ability to access the particular linguistic registers necessary in order to get yourself out of it, completely change. So I, I'm, I, I, I haven't gone into it in great detail, but there's something there that needs to be further looked at. Um, okay, uh, I'm going to stop there. <laughs>